Oh, good morning, River Tree. Really glad you're here this morning. Thanks for worshiping with us. Uh, hello to all those at the main campus. Really glad you're here. Uh, as you heard in the welcome video, there's just a lot of ways to get connected here at River Tree. One of those ways that you took advantage of a couple Friday nights ago was the Fall Jam. I don't know how many of you were a part of that event, but it was really a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for coming, bringing friends, uh, bringing neighbors. Uh, it, it's a kind of it's one of those events where you're not quite sure how many people came, uh, and so over the last few years, we, we count hot dog consumption, like that's the best way we know about what kind of event it was and how many people were there, and so it was a significant hot dog event, I'll, I will say that, and so thanks for being part of that Friday night, uh, fellowshipping, connecting, uh, another way to connect with River Trees through Worship One, Serve One, uh, and as you heard through uh, the welcome video and that opportunity to get connected here, uh, let me just point you to the guide. On the back of the guide, uh, there's a special focus ministry, a highlight on children's ministry, just a minute ministry on Sunday mornings to our kids and to our families. And so if you're looking for a way to get involved in the life of River Tree, uh, that is a great place to start, a great, a great ministry to consider uh, as we are not only serving on Sundays, but really kind of getting ready and trying to put all the people in the right places for the downtown campus launch uh, towards the beginning of next year. And so if you would love to find out more about how to get connected here, we'd love to continue that conversation with you. And so again, so, so glad you're here. We would love to help this place feel more like a home to you. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 12. We are making our way through the gospel of Mark. Uh, we're in a particular section of scripture where Jesus tells a parable, tells a story. And I want to I tell you a little bit about why this parable is important and kind of the context of this parable so that you get a sense of some of the tension that you're going to feel and sense as we look at what Jesus says here. Uh, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and this is kind of that, uh, that moment right after Jesus has gone into the temple and he has cleared the temple. He's turned over the tables that were exchanging money. He has stopped the selling of sacrifices. Uh, he entered in kind of to the hosannas and to the praise of the people, and as he makes his way into the temple, he disrupts it. Really, he puts the entire experience and establishment on notice. And he realizes in the middle of this kind of chaos and environment that the temple is supposed, supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a place of worship. It's supposed to be a place where the nations, the Gentiles, the world could come and have an encounter with God, but they can't because of the way the temple is being run, because of the leadership of the temple, and because of the spiritual uh, pastors and shepherds of Israel have, have become neglectful uh, and, and have used their positions within leadership uh, for self-advancement and for profit. And so Jesus does this really incredible thing, critical thing of just stopping the entire temple experience leading up to a particular festival where there have been tens of thousands of people in the temple. And it was this moment, this moment where Jesus kind of expels the money changers uh, and, and stops those selling sacrifices that the spiritual leaders and the priests and the Levites and the Sadducees, they realize it's this moment where Jesus is um, a threat, a threat to the establishment, a threat to what they're doing. And it, it's that moment where they pretty much determine that he needs to die. And Jesus knows this. Jesus understands the tensions that are at work, but he is uh, bold in what he says, and he begins to teach in the temple courts. And it's after this cleansing of the temple that Jesus goes back into the temple, and this is a parable that he begins to teach. So look with me in verse 1, Mark chapter 12. It says, Jesus then began to teach and speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, 
He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Israel had always uh, kind of considered itself uh, God's vineyard. It was, a, it was a common picture of how they understood themselves and, and who they were to God and kind of God's planting within the nation. So much had the vineyard and this uh, idea of vines and grapes was such a part of the culture that uh, the entryway into the temple, into the interior of the temple, had this ornate uh, carved uh, grapevine all along the doorway that you would enter through made of gold and jewels. This, this picture of a vineyard and God's vine, it was something that Israel had always kind of understood itself to be, so much so that there was a reference even in Isaiah chapter 5 about Israel being a vineyard. Let me show you this in verse 1 through 2. Isaiah says this, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. That word fruit, that bad fruit, it can be um, translated as well as wild or diseased. So I want you to hear that there was something that was happening Uh, within even Isaiah's day, that Isaiah was speaking to this, that God had planted a vineyard and God was the the planter. God was the owner. The Lord Almighty owned the vineyard, planted it. Israel was the vineyard. And if you continue to read Isaiah chapter five, it says that God delighted in the vines. He delighted in the vineyard. And as he looked into the vineyard for justice, all he saw was bloodshed. As he looked into the vineyard for righteousness, all he saw were cries of distress. And so what you see God doing in Isaiah chapter 5 is he turns the vineyard into a wasteland. He tears it all down. And now this would have been a passage that would have been in the mind of Jesus' listeners as he begins to talk about a very similar kind of picture of an owner planting a vineyard of building a wine press, putting in a watchtower, and then handing it over to tenants and renters. And you see that there's this kind of tension being built. In Luke's gospel, this same parable is recorded. And at the end of it, when Jesus tells that kind of that moment where how the owner of the vineyard will turn it over and give it over to somebody else, the crowd says, God forbid, 
Like, may it not be. They knew what God was saying in Isaiah, this kind of work that God had done and this neglect and this unrighteousness and this injustice that was being expressed within the vineyard of what God would do. Isaiah chapter five and what Jesus is beginning to offer us here in Mark 12 is a parable of judgment and the people knew it. And so there was this great concern in what they were hearing Jesus say that somehow God would revisit Israel, would would kind of reestablish the vineyard for some other purpose, would, would kind of tear it all down. And we know that, I mean, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to say, that there's something happening here the man who planted the vineyard it's, is God. And, and you begin to see that God rented out the vineyard to tenants or kind of spiritual leaders or shepherds of the people. And he, he gave them kind of a charge and God would come and God would kind of ask for his portion, the, the rent, a, a portion of the harvest that was due the owner. But it says that the tenants kind of rejected that. And the messengers that God sent The tenants ran off, they beat, they killed, and it highlights so much of what Israel, kind of Israel's history with God's people, with God's prophets, that God would send prophets, and they wouldn't always be received. Elijah was said to be kind of run out into the wilderness. Isaiah, tradition says that he was killed. Zechariah, that he was stoned to death. And we know this currently, even within Jesus' setting, that John the Baptist was beheaded. So these messengers that God keeps sending kind of establish the relationship to create this this honor between the owner and the tenants. We realize that it's not been happening. Why did they send away the messengers? Why was there such resistance? Why did they do this? They beat and killed the messengers because they wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be in charge. They killed the son of the owner, hoping that if they killed the son, that the property would default to those that were living there, that the property would default, the inheritance would default to those that were taking care of it because they wanted to be in control. Lots of studies have been done. Uh, I read read one recently uh, about this kind kind of foundational need, psychological need in all of us to, um, to self-determine, to have choices, to, to be in control. And one of the studies I read talked about if there was an ice cream shop one minute from your house that had three flavors, and there was an ice cream shop 10 minutes from your house that had 15 flavors, that how many people over and over, a majority of people would travel the extra time to go to a place that had more options because we like choices. We like to self-determine. We, we like to be in control, to be able to act autonomously with, with our own kind of self-interests, with our own set of values. We like to make those decisions. And so at a, at a deep level, we orient ourselves away from anyone who would threaten our sense of autonomy from our ability to determine and to control and to be in charge. Anything that restricts our choices, any, any body or anything that, that limits our capacity for freedom or to self-determine, we, we resist that. Another study talked about if you had a job and comparing two different kinds of jobs, if you got a job promotion that gave you not necessarily more money, but more influence in the company, more people to control or to manage versus if you got a promotion in the company, not any more money, but you just had more freedom to do whatever you wanted to do that more people choose the job that gives them more freedom, more autonomy, 
more, more control to determine. And this, this resistance that we have to authority, this resistance we have to someone else being an authority or being in charge of our life, Paul talks about this to the Romans when he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, he says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That the natural default to our way of thinking, to our perspective, is to be hostile to God. We, we won't submit to God. We cannot submit to God. That there is something inside of us that wants to be in charge, that even if we aren't able to admit our disdain for God, that something is there and present, that a work of God has to happen in our life to actually reveal our resistance, our hostility. Colossians 1.21 says this, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Paul says deep down, we're enemies. Deep down, there's a, there's a hatred and a resistance to God's power, to God's authority, because each one of us desires to be in charge, to be in charge of our lives, to control outcomes, to self-determine, to be free of restriction and authority. Frank Sinatra says, I did it my way, all the way to Twisted Sister that says, we're not gonna take it. But this, this broad range, it's within our culture to push back on anyone who tries to be an authority to control, to determine our lives. We want to be in charge. And I would say this, you, seldom will you hear somebody say, I hate God. You probably don't have too many people in your lives that are that bold, that honest, that blunt. But there are ways in which we get around that without saying it. That there is often many of us that kind of operate in a polite ambivalence. That we have kind of mixed feelings about God. And if we can just do a few good things, then we'll just really, for the rest of the majority of our lives, do what we want that if I can just serve here, give here, attend this, be part of a couple little things, then the rest of my life I can say, God, I got it from here. Or if it's not polite ambivalence of just kind of doing what we want to do quietly, then we redefine the gospel. And we talk about grace in such a way where obedience seems harsh or obedience seems severe that we kind of move the pendulum over to only talking about God's love in a way that obedience and consequences don't seem to fit anymore. And so there's all kinds of ways that we push back on the authority of God, on the work of God, the, 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 the place and the submission. When Jesus shares this parable of the vineyard, what he's saying is there is an owner and there is a renter. And the owner is God. The owner is God. We're the tenants. We're the renters. Growing up, my mom's side of the family had uh, some far, uh, a farm in and around the Lynchburg, Tennessee area. And I can remember going up there a few times as a kid, and it didn't stay in the family forever. Um, it, it began to be kind of parceled out to other family members, and, and some of it were sold. But there was, a, there was a window of time where when we would go up to see her side of the family, we'd stop by the farm, or we would hear stories, or we would check in with other family members. And during that time, the farm was uh, being rented. There was somebody else, tenants were living on the farm, farming it for the family. 
And there began to be a story circulating that we needed to visit. There were some things happening out on the property that weren't okay. And sure enough, it was true. And the story was that the, the tenant, the renter, was having rooster fights in the barn. So there was this uh, rooster fighting and gambling going on in the barn. And so my mom, of all people within the family, was tasked with the, the job to be the messenger and to go and tell, confront the tenant that this was inappropriate behavior. And so she ended up on the farm one day. He was out on his tractor in the field. She walked out there. He stopped the tractor. She let him know, hey, can't do that anymore. It's illegal. And all she got was, you know, kind of him on his tractor and kind of spitting tobacco on the ground. We drove by a couple weeks later and not just the barn now was being active, but there were all these little kind of triangular houses, little dog houses looking things on the property. And so he was not only fighting roosters now, but he was actually raising fighting roosters on the property. Her, her message had gone nowhere. He was still doing what he wanted to do because he, he wanted to be the owner. He wanted to be in charge. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. And how, is that, how true is that of us that when authority isn't around, when it's just distant, what are we willing to do to self-determine? How do we take charge? What do we like to be in control over? All of us would rather give orders and commands than take them. And so at a, at a deep level, at a, at a kind of a base level, there's something inside of us that has this high value on freedom, this high value on self-determination to do what makes you happy. Do that. Believe what you want to believe. We have this hope one day that if I could just have enough resources, enough security kind of around me that I could do whatever I wanted to do and nobody could stop me. And that what's behind winning the lottery in our heads, like this, kind of like, if I could just have unlimited resources, boy, the things that I would do, the things that I would be in charge of. The problem is this kind of life of unaccountability, this life of you being in charge, of doing whatever you want to do to make yourself happy, of believing whatever you want to believe, this life has never been affirmed within the Bible. It's never been affirmed within Scripture that, that you can just do whatever you want to do. The idea is that you aren't your own. Your life is not your own. Your, your thoughts are not your own thoughts. Your actions are not your own actions. You aren't just free to do whatever you want to do. Your sexuality is not your own to express however you want to. Your money is not your own to live and spend and to do whatever you want to do. Over and over again, the Bible continues to, to clarify this relationship that your life is meant to steward resources of the owner, which you're not. And as Jesus begins to tell this story, to clarify this relationship, he highlights the very work and grace of God that God sends messengers time and time and time again. And God sends messengers to Israel to remind the leaders of Israel, the shepherds of Israel, to not use the blessing of God, to not use their position within God, to leverage that for their own welfare, for their own being, for their own profit, that they are tending God's work. And so he sends prophets he even sends his son. And I would just, don't miss the patience of God, even within this parable that is kind of, kind of wrought with this tension, that there is this patience of God of sending messengers that God never just gives us one chance. 
There is this patience and kindness of God to continue to send messengers, to continue to kind of help pull us out of the illusion that we hold on to so tightly that you're in control, that you're in charge. What messengers have been sent to you? What messengers have been sent to you? Is there something right now that that you're pushing back on? You know, life has a way of sending events and circumstances into our life that are just out of our control. Life has a way of reminding us over and over again because it moves, it shifts, it adjusts, it's unpredictable. You're here right now, but you don't know what's going to happen in five minutes. And this unpredictability about life reminds you that you're not in control that you're not in charge. And sometimes we will look at the chaos that we're experiencing in our lives as everything seems to be falling apart and we use that as an argument against there being a God. But the chaos of life is an argument against you being in control. That someone else might be. That there may be a greater authority than you. That the circumstances are an argument that you're not the owner. So what are you doing with the messengers? What are you you frustrated with right now? What are you pushing back on? What are you resisting in this moment? How is life trying to show you that you're not in charge? How is God's grace and mercy present in those circumstances? Second Peter reminds us of this, that God is not slow. He's patient. He's not slow as if we think about slow in the way we think about slowness. But he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, wanting everyone to come to repentance. And so life circumstances that you're involved in right now are an ongoing act of God's mercy and kindness in your life to help you realize who you are and who he is. To honor the relationship of the owner and the tenant. God's kindness and mercy are front and center when he sends his son. There's never been a more gracious act. There's never been a more merciful act, kind act. And yet what happens? When the son in the story enters the vineyard, in the vineyard, what do the tenants say? Yes, it's the heir. Let's kill him. Now what's fascinating about that to me is that the tenants aren't, they don't have an issue with mistaken identity. The spiritual leaders around Jesus at that point, he isn't giving them a pass that they just, They're unaware. They know what they're doing, and yet Jesus is willing to tell the story. Jesus submits to this, and we see within the story that the tenants kill the son. And so, what does the owner do? I'll ask you, what would you do if you sent your son, your child, to the renters to clarify the relationship, and they kill him? Would you just give the renters the vineyard? No. You wouldn't. The owner will come, Jesus says, and kill the tenants and give the vineyard to somebody else. Here, I mean, the the challenging part in this too is like we talk about God with great affection when we talk about God as father or friend or comforter. Right? But There's something that we push back on when we begin to talk about God as just, as God being a judge. 
Because we all want love, not judgment. We want love, but not accountability. Or I might want love and God to be, hold you accountable, but I don't know if I want that for myself. And we live within this tension of if I'm really to be judged, then that means that there is a standard or rule in which my life is being measured against. In other words, I am not my own standard. And and that tension within us to realize what's being said here, that God will deal, God will judge with rebellion and evil. And I'll ask you the question, would you rather have a God who didn't know the difference, could not discern between good and evil, or at least just didn't care about the two. Would you rather have that? Psalm 82 verse eight says this, rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. So we want God to deal with the problems and the evil in the world. If we have a God who is only overlooking, who is only lenient, only passive, then how do we trust him when evil is visited upon our own lives? See, this is something that I I feel like the Lord's been helping me grow in to understand what what is so good about God being judge? What is so good about God being just? It means this, that if that is God's character, if God truly is a judge and just, it means then at some point God will address everything that is wrong with the world and turn it right. And if he will do that, if there will be a day, then it frees me that when evil or suffering is visited upon my life, that I don't have to end up in a cycle of revenge and retribution. I can be at peace that there will be a day where the judge who knows every inclination, who knows every motive, who knows every heart will judge rightly. It frees us. And it's because that truth is so important for us, from the very beginning, God's people have been praying and hoping for a day where God would judge. You may not have experienced it, but there are evils in the world that will only be undone, that will only be addressed when Jesus returns. There are people suffering and dealing with all kinds of hardships and wrong. And what we hold on to is this, there is coming a point where all that will be resolved, where every callous thought, where every coarse joke, where every slight, where every wrong will be put right. And God will judge justly. Because judgment is coming, there will be a moment where God's will will be done. And that is encouraging for us. We need that, not just for ourselves, but for the world. To end evil, to end suffering, to end rebellion. Listen, Nahum, minor prophet, talks about this, kind of brings these two ideas together. I love the way he talks about God's goodness and God's judgment. He says this in Nahum chapter 1, verse 3 and 7. He says, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. As you read this parable, there's a kind of this this tragic quality to it. Because you and I tell stories all the time, and there's something about this story where as the owner begins to send messengers, and they begin to treat them poorly, and they begin to beat them, and they begin to kill them, there's some point within the story where you're thinking, at some point, the tenants and the renters are going to get it. 
at, at some point they're going to understand what they've done. They're going to realize what they're doing. They're going to realize who the owner is. Right? You, you're kind of rooting for that point in the story, and it, and it doesn't come. That God is the owner. And in all of his blessing, in all of his work, he entrusts it to these tenants, and they take control over it as if it's theirs. And God sends messenger after messenger after messenger to clarify the honor that needs to be in the relationship, and they reject it over and over. So finally, God sends his son. The owner sends his son, the one he loves. Surely, when they see the son, they'll respect him. And they kill him and they throw him out. Now, what's, what I find really powerful within this is that Jesus himself is telling the story. Jesus is the son. He's actually telling them what they're going to do. Now, if you want to know if their minds are hostile to God, if you want to know if they're enemies of the Lord in the way they are, the fact that Jesus would actually say to them, here's what you're going to do. You're, you're going to hate me and going to kill me. And in him so doing, they hate him and want to kill him. Him actually speaking the truth of what's going to happen kind of provokes them even further. He knows what's going to happen. He reveals the leader's hearts. And as he tells them, you're going to kill me, Jesus brings something in so important. I want you to see it. Psalm 118. He knows what's going to happen to him and he's still willing to let evil run its course because a greater prophecy is being expressed. Mark 12, verse 10, Jesus says this, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's not just the rejection of the Messiah. It's not just the rejection of Jesus that has been foretold, but in God's power, in God's sovereignty, it's not just the rejection, but it's through the rejection that God will do something in Jesus and make him the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone, it was the most important block within the structure, within the building. It was the place where when two walls intersected, it was that base stone, and the cornerstone needed to be perfect because the lines and the dimensions of the cornerstone would create the lines and the dimensions of the rest of the building. So the integrity of the building, the beauty of the building, it all was connected to the cornerstone. And Jesus is saying this, the stone that you reject will become the cornerstone. In other words, all of what you're doing in your rejection, in your rebellion, in your resistance, in your desire to be controlled, God has seen that. And through that, Jesus himself will become the new reference point for the new building, for the new temple, the church. That he would become a place that would create a new foundation for you and I to know God and to relate to God in a different way than we ever had before. It's through Jesus, rejection and death, that he becomes a sure foundation for us to know God, to be with him. Jesus was treated as the enemy that we are so that you and I could be a friend of God. This great reversal. And that's the way into this relationship with God. To admit, to admit that you want to be in charge. The way into the relationship is to admit, to admit that you, you want to be the boss. Listen, the spiritual leaders around Jesus knew this. They knew that they either needed to submit to him or they needed to kill him. They needed to kill him or crown him. There, there really weren't two, any other options. 
And you see that happening, this desire in us to want to be boss, this desire in us to want to be in charge. And that begins to change when you realize that your life is not as important as you thought it was. That your plans, your agenda, the thing that you're trying to accomplish, secondary. That you're not in control. That you're not in charge that there's something going on more important than you. And that's the place where Jesus' words and life, his sacrifice, even his resurrection, it, it stands, it, it's placed right in front of us, reminding us over and over again that this, all of this, it's not about you. It's about him. And you and I are the renters, the tenants, the stewards. And you must either crown him or kill him. How do you know you're becoming a Christian? It's not something that you do or don't do. It's beginning to embrace the crown of Christ over your life. It's seeing him for who he really is. Listen, maybe, maybe you've thought your goodness, just being good, could kind of get you out of your commitment to God. That if I could just do enough good things, if I could just kind of have my ledger be more positive than negative, right? If I could just do appropriate things, then, then I don't really have to admit that I am a sinner saved by grace and the sacrifice of Jesus my Savior, that if I can just do enough good things, then you can be back in the driver's seat of your life and God can't make any real demands over you because you're, you're not a bad person. If you are hell-bent on being the owner of your life, at some point, God will give you over to that. God will let you. And you will be alone in that and apart from him. And I'm not trying to scare you, but I am. That this is the reality of our lives. There are really only two things that you can do with Jesus. You either come to him, submit and surrender your broken life and broken attempts before him, or the rightful judgment of God will be over you. What you do with Jesus determines everything. Let's pray. I don't want to resolve it, but I just want to speak to the tension that I know we all can feel. Wondering about our hearts and have they truly been changed? Is Jesus truly sitting on the throne of your life? That maybe you're a follower of God, you've been a Christian, but you might be reminded of this morning that there's, a, there's an area of your life that you are still fighting to control. There's something that you're trying to be in charge of, something that you're trying to accomplish.
that you want. And maybe that area this morning, God would present you a message that you can trust him. That you can open up your hands and let go of your plans and allow God to use even this situation to accomplish something good in you for his glory. That you can trust him. Maybe this morning you have never ever really submitted to the Lord's leadership in your life, to his authority, that you've been in and out, doing some good things here and there, kind of politely living your life, but but you've never really given the throne of your heart to Christ. This morning, right now, is God being merciful to you, kind to you, bring a message of hope that if you would trust him if you would begin to just admit that you're trying to be the boss of your life that you might see Jesus on the cross for you and believe in his sacrifice and his love and his grace and that Jesus experienced the judgment and wrath of God for us He became an enemy in a moment so that we could be a friend forever. God, would you do a work in our hearts to draw us to you, to respond, to make a decision, to worship, to surrender our lives to you this morning. Holy Spirit, as we begin to sing, as we begin to reflect, just continue to use this time to draw us to yourself, to change us, to make us new, and to love you for all that you've done through your mercy and grace. Being just and good, we love you.